Hello, this is a London Business School Review podcast about happiness at work. These two words haven't always sat together, happiness and work. Happiness is something that happens outside of work, right? Well, the experts disagree. My name is Emily Buchanan and I'm talking with Dan Cable, Professor of Organisational Behaviour at London Business School. Dan's area of teaching and research include employee engagement, leading change, organisational culture and its effects on sustained competitive advantage. Dan is very interested in happiness at work and specifically how work can become a place where we feel motivated, purposeful and fully alive. According to both US and global Gallup polls, about 80% of workers don't feel like they can be their best at work and 70% are not engaged at work. Is work meant to be work or can it be more and should it be more? His latest book, Alive at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press, explores this and he's with us today to discuss the ideas in detail. Is it true that they're not happy at work? It looks as though most people in the world are not happy at work. 78% of the world, you know, if they measure, for instance, 1.7 million people, 63 countries, 101 companies, about 78% of the people are disengaged from work and they feel that they have to shut off at work. They feel like work's a place they have to go to shut off. And so whether that makes them unhappy, whether those are the same constructs we could have a conversation about, but certainly they would see work as a four-letter word, a commute to the weekend. So how is it that companies have become like that so... So narrow, is this to do with the model that they're based on? Is this an economics model? What is the reason why things are so restrictive for people? If we go back to 1880, we invented something called management. And that's where I'd like to start. If you were 1850 and you wanted to buy shoes, um, you can go to a cobbler. There'd be three people working there and everybody there would watch the customer walk in. Somebody would touch the customer's foot. Somebody would stitch together leather. Starting around 1880, we got this new idea where instead of selling three pairs of shoes, let's sell 3,000 shoes today. Instead of having three people work here, let's have 64,000 people work at Nike. Most of the people at Nike don't meet the customer. They don't design the shoes. They might post pictures of shoes online, but they didn't take the pictures. They didn't decide what shoes to take the pictures of. But you're talking about industrialization, basically, mass production. I think that that's the answer. The scientific management, which was a way of breaking jobs into their smallest bits so that you could teach somebody in a day. You could almost teach uh, a monkey to do such a job. The idea that you were supposed to do that small task, which is broken from the final product or end result, that you were supposed to do that in a repetitive way, day in and day out, hour in and hour out, was a new way of thinking. But it worked. I mean, industrial societies flourished. That's right. The money came rolling in, didn't it? One way that you could think about this is if you're Henry Ford and you know exactly what you want them to do and you've hired your scientific management consultants and they've broken down the tasks and then you can just pay people to do exactly what I tell you to do, that works really well if the world's not changing much. So Henry Ford was allowed to And by allowed, I mean the market allowed Henry Ford to exploit that decision, make money from that decision for 10 years. Also, 
was able to make the car in one color for 10 years, black. Nowadays, you don't get 10 years with a new innovation. You may not get 10 months. In IT, you don't get 10 weeks. So the idea that there's not time for the leader to figure it all out and then tell you exactly what to do every time there's a change, every time there's a disruption. And what leaders are now looking for in order to survive are employees that don't wait to be asked, but they ask and do. They try to create change and innovation without being told specifically how to change. That's a big, big cultural change, That's isn't right. it? That's massive. It's threatening. It's threatening to the power structures at the top That's of a company, it. and right. it's very challenging to the workers themselves. That's right. Now, the good news with the workers themselves is there's a part of the brain that's dedicated to just this. This is the seeking system. There's a part of our brain that urges us to be curious, to keep on learning, to try new things, to try to figure out cause and effect in the environment. So is this an evolutionary aspect of ourselves? That's right. So all mammals would have this part of the brain. Um, the weird thing about a human is we also have a prefrontal cortex, which asks why. Purpose becomes really important to this part of our brain, but we won't go into that right now. I think that what's really important in the context of this specific conversation is there's a part of our brain that pushed us out of Africa in very early days. There's a part of our brain that urges us to get out of the bed or out of the cave if you're a bear, even when you have everything, when you have food and you have shelter, you still want to go explore more. If you're in a job that's repetitive and confined and doesn't seem to have a lot of meaning, there's an urge within us, natural urge, intrinsic urge, saying, this is boring. You're made for something better. It used to be that that was seen as a bug in our system. That was something that Henry Ford had to overcome. Was this then all about you got to be content with your lot? And, and we'll pay you twice grateful. as much. We'll give you, we'll make it a $5 day, we'll pay you twice as much, but you have to act like a machine. And you have to do that 10 hours a day and every day and do the same thing. You have to become micro-specialized. There's a part of our brain where you don't think of that as a bug, you think of this as a feature. Boredom is a feature saying, you're better than this, and you're not learning anymore. You're not being curious. You're being repetitive. You're not pushing yourself. And your very good question is, why are organizations this way, and why did it work? It seems to work pretty well if you can scare people, get their attention, dangle a bonus or a raise or a lost job, and motivate them to stay very focused. When the world's changing a lot, it doesn't seem to make companies competitive. So suddenly those workers have a choice. They hmm. could go somewhere else. That seems to be happening a lot. That's an interesting piece of this. I think that firms that can be seen as a platform that allow people to use their strengths will attract people that not only have a curiosity and a drive to learn and do more, but then will be more able to keep them. You can pay people the going rate, but get so much more out of them if they think that it's exciting or interesting, if it gives them a chance to use what they're best at, if they feel that the purpose of that act is worthwhile or interesting. So I think that what you're talking about right now, if I, if I had to put some words around it, in the 80s and the 90s, we talked about a war for talent. And that war was, how do we attract 
and poach the best and the brightest from our competitors. And that was seen as the human capital movement. I think there's a new war for talent, which is once you have the best and the brightest, how do you turn them on instead of switch them off? How do you unleash what's within them in terms of their energy and their passion, as opposed to shut them down and make them dissatisfied with work? Well, okay, how do you do that? If you're managing a company and you're suddenly trying to get these people in and you want to keep them, what, how do you keep the company evolving so that they stay interested? That's so good. Two concepts. One is called the freedom in the frame, and the second one is back to the seeking system, which is this part of our brain. So first in terms of the freedom in the frame, Yes, organizations have to still meet regulations. There's things that by law they have to do. The government says do it this way and keep these records. They got to do that. Number two, they've made commitments to customers. They've said you'll get this quality product on this date. And third, big companies have policies. If you're operating in 40 different countries, you're going to have a lot of policies in terms of the way you have to act in this company. All those things are still going to have to be there. That's the frame. Within that frame, great leaders will find a freedom to allow people to express their ideas, their unique perspectives, to create, experiment, try new things, learn, and feel a sense of purpose, feel that what I'm doing affects somebody. I can see my impact on the world. And that is what you would say is happiness at work. Mm, absolutely. Let me tell you why. This part of our brain, called the seeking system, when it is activated, drops dopamine into our bodies. And dopamine is a feel-good drug. Dopamine is the part of our chemistry, our biochemistry, that causes us to feel enthusiastic. It makes us feel energized. It pushes us to do more of what makes us curious, to learn more. It also leads to what psycholo psychologists call zest. It's like Martin Seligman would he would label this zest. It's this feeling, if I could say it this way, that life is an adventure and not a hassle. Zest is when you approach life and you breathe in and you say, wow, can I do this? As opposed to a, I don't really feel like going through this again. How many people commuting each day exactly. on, the, on the underground feel that? One other thing I'd like to mention about dopamine that I find really relevant here. Dopamine controls our time perception. Dopamine is what allows us to perceive whether time is moving fast or moving at a glacial pace. And you and I both know jobs where we have felt that the minutes just grind by and that the hours are just something to try to kill to get to lunch. Many, many people do not experience much dopamine because they're not allowed to do the things that activate the seeking system. They're specifically forbidden to be creative, to try new things, to keep learning. That is unhappiness at work. And it's interesting because we've had a big culture of long hours at work, people feeling they have to spend all this time at work. But actually what you're saying is if there was lots of dopamine flowing, they wouldn't even notice that they'd and just spent six, they'd, they'd have 16 hour days and come home feeling quite 16 fine. hours would be a bit much. <laughs> um, to be honest, uh, I'll be a little provocative. If you thought of designing work so that you could release dopamine, you could make work addictive in the same way that, for instance, World of Warcraft is addictive to the players. Once they strap on that headset and they start solving problems as a team, 
They'll play for four and five hours in a sitting. That sounds a lot like work. The difference is instead of being paid, they pay to do it. The idea of exploring new worlds, the idea of having a special skill that you add into the team, something unique that adds value, of seeing your impact on other people, that becomes addictive. That becomes something that humans want to do more of. Let me give you another story. Microsoft is currently doing a thing because the CEO has started to understand that their future is probably not in software. And what they're trying to do now is understand clients' problems so that they design custom solutions, much more akin to consulting than software. They're not very good at this. It's not the way it's worked the last 25 or 30 years. They're used to having in-the-box software that just pays off and you plug it in. You don't even need agents that work with clients. This is plug and play. One of the things that they're doing right now is they're taking teams of people out into the field to meet with big clients. And that might be Tesla car company or Sony PlayStation. It might be an insurance company or a hospital that's trying to go paperless. What they'll do is they'll take people from senior ranks, um, Dorothy Ree in the Vienna office, she's the country manager, the whole way down to a new hire that's been there one year and is doing some programming. 15, 20 people and they'll go on site and they'll just sit with the client and say, tell us about what problems you're trying to fix. And they'll listen, and they'll think about what they've got, and then they'll design a solution around the customer's needs. What that means is all those different people get to think about what's the impact of the work that we put together. All those different people get to say, it's not something where we ship it, we have to design it. And then all those people have a unique role to play so that when all the pieces come together, the client says, wow, and I think that that's a really interesting example. That doesn't cost money. It takes mindset and it takes time. Okay, so some companies then, you're saying Microsoft is starting to, to think like this, but other companies, other countries <laughs> have an awful long way to go, haven't Good. they? Before Absolutely. people start to go skipping into work and feeling yes. really happy. And a lot that's of jobs, right. it doesn't. Right. It, it's very hard to be that happy that's every right. day. I think you're right. Let's talk about an example that um, a study that we did in Wipro, which is in India. They're a huge technology company. Part of their organization, which is very hard to work in, is a call center where you handle customer complaints. So if you bought a Hewlett Packard printer and the paper wasn't feeding right and you were mad, you call up Hewlett Packard and you're gonna yell at them, you're actually channeled to India where there's a customer service rep that's gonna help you solve your problem. It wasn't working that well. At Wipro, they were at about a 60% satisfaction and they wanted to get to 80% as world-class, that that would be their minimum. So we went in there, um, myself, uh, Fran Gino at Harvard University and Brad Stotts, he's at North Carolina. We go and we learn that this job is really tough because nobody calls happy. Nobody calls and says, thanks, it's working great. Day after day, hour after hour, call after call, it's entitled Westerners that want a quick answer to their problem. And it really is stressful and it grinds them down and they have to also de-Indianize themselves and try to take on an accent. They had to try to use Western slang. Very difficult. So we did this study where we tried to ignite a little bit of their seeking system, where we went in there and we said, can we have 700 people that you're hiring and try different things with different people? And in some people, 
they hire them in what they affectionately call batches, 15 people. We did randomly assigned to do what they always do, which is classic jobs-based training. And in other people, we randomly assigned to a condition where a senior manager came in the very first hour of the very first day. And that manager said to them, before we even talk about the job, we want to know more about you. This is your very first hour of your very first day with Wipro. We want you to start by writing for 15 minutes about who you are when you're at your best. Write down specific stories of times that you were at your potential. And not even just at work. Might be at work, might be at home. We gave them time and they wrote. Kind of a weird thing to have people do. Then there are 15 of them sitting in a room and he says, now you've not even met each other yet. What I want you to do is sit down together, introduce yourselves, but introduce your best self. Tell each other what you're capable of when you're at your best. Maybe read one of those stories. So they do that. And then all those people end up going into the regular training. We learned after tracking these people for six months that they were 32% less likely to quit and they were making customers statistically, significantly, substantially happier, 11% happier. But that's extraordinary, after one meeting. One hour of one meeting. We didn't spend any money. We didn't change the technology. We didn't paint the walls. We didn't put in bean bags. And what was that about? Was that making them feel valued as people? Could be more than one thing. What well, one thing that we know it is because we replicated this back in Boston with some data entry operators is that they felt that people at work knew who they really were. So you can call that self-expression. And some of them made comments like, I've worked at some places for two years and the people didn't know me as well as they know me now after one day. It's this idea of being known for who we are and maybe our strengths and not just a number in a machine. This idea of hiring 15, 20 people a day, everybody gets a number and then they're shoved on a conveyor belt that's called the job. For human beings, that's a bit repellent. But you could have predicted that. I mean, hundreds of years ago, you could have said that's pretty demeaning and pretty miserable. And, right. you know, most people wouldn't want to do that. That's such a good point. A response to that would be to say, I have worked with companies for 35 years on hiring and onboarding and never has one done it this way. No company I've ever worked with has started by saying, it's your first day. We want to know more about you. What they usually start with, it's your first day, let us show you what you need to do. Back to the freedom in the frame. I think that when you have an organization that gets to not three people and not 30 people, but 300 people, something starts to happen where you can no longer trust everybody. There's this Dunbar number that a lot of people kick around, which is about 150, where our brains can't handle that many relationships. At 300 people, I can't watch you, I can't trust you, but what I can do is measure you. And once we put measurements and KPIs as substitutes for trust, we're inserting controls, which are numeric, something we can watch and regulate. Once we're at that point, we can then start trying to become more and more efficient. Now that's good. That's not evil. That's good. That's organizations trying to do more with less so they can provide more value to the world. That's great. I think that what has changed is that if firms today are only thinking about how to be more efficient, then you end up with more and more and more KPIs and measures, controls, and frame. The frame gets really thick and strong, but that comes at the cost of the freedom. 
But it's a danger now, isn't it, now that more and more things are measurable and, and everybody will be looking at the data. Wow, that's a great insight as well. The idea that information technology could be making the frame thicker and stronger and bigger is happening at exactly the time that we need to be lessening the frame, giving people chances to experiment, try new things, play to their strengths, see what works. The whole notion of agile change, the whole notion of thinking about learn fast what doesn't work, try little prototypes, go out to the customer and gather data on what they like and don't like, adapt in real time, form real relationships with people, so what would you say then to company leaders, if, if supposing they're in a big company, and okay, they're not Microsoft, so they're not doing that kind of innovation already, but they're just in this big organization, they're aware they need to make their workers happy. What would you say to them? It's about not being mired in largeness. Mired in largeness would mean that you've let it become so impersonal and so metrics bound that people don't feel there's a chance to experiment. So that's a mindset. And the mindset is only a balance. It's not saying either or. It's saying if you've got KLM Airlines, and that's a 42,000 person organization, they're a global large airline, they have to land the plane safely. They have to follow the regulations around flight safety announcements. But four years ago, when they decided to start pushing on social media, they allowed a team to go out with 10,000 euro in a very unstructured way and experiment. See what you can do with social media. Most of the employees, 108 employees up at Schiphol Airport, most of them didn't really want to do it, but eight people said, can we? Would you let us do that? And what they did is they devised, you can go watch this online, but they devised this program. And these are the employees, not the leadership team. The employees devised a program where they looked at any passenger that tweeted or used LinkedIn to announce that they were coming to their flight or checked in on Foursquare. They counter Googled them and learned about their profile, about who they really were. Then they bought them a personalized gift. So somebody that was going to Dubai, for example, that tweeted, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to miss my best team in this game. They bought them a notebook and put in a map of all the sports bars that he could go to so he could catch the match for a traveler that was going to a fitness um, meeting in Washington, D.C., they bought her a watch, one of those sort of pulse watches that Nike puts out. So they spent 25, 30 um, euro a piece. They found these people in the airport and presented it, and they got a million movements online. They did that in three weeks. But that's a completely unsustainable initiative, isn't it? Well, that's an interesting one. It got them a lot of positive um, press. It got them sort of this million movements. They were still flying the airplane and landing it safely. What it caused them to do is quadruple down in terms of money. That team became 25 people. And the next thing they did is, the, the employees did this, so that the seats, when you go to pick them now, you don't just pick what seat you're gonna sit in, you pick who you're gonna sit next to because all the seats are now linked to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So you're kind of, like speed dating a little bit, you're kind of picking who you would like to sit with. So if you, you have a really boring flight, then you can blame KLM. And yourself, because <laughs> you've chosen poorly. But my point here is at this point, four years later, KLM has now seen, they won the Webby Award along with the New York Times and Lady Gaga and Twitter. They're seen as the most social media relevant airline in the world. 
They're in the top 10 companies that use social media effectively. Last year, they made 25 million euro simply through their online presence. They now have 35 people working on this. So did that hurt their airline or help their airline? Well, one way to think of it is if you want to be relevant in today's world and you run a social business, social media is pretty relevant. There's 2 billion people on Facebook now. People like my daughter believe that it's the only way to communicate. They regularly laugh at me because I still use email. It's very likely that firms that aren't good at social media will perish and become irrelevant. They'll go the way of a Kodak when it held on to film, or BlackBerry when it really thought that keyboard was important, or Nokia before that. The idea that the world's tastes keep changing and firms have to play around to stay relevant is a really important part of what you're asking. So what you're saying is that to make the workers happier, to give them this dopamine experience, to help them be more creative, to follow their seeking drive, actually in the end creates a more successful business. That's right. I think that's the golden age of human emotions. I really believe this. The, the secret that you just mentioned there is foremost of an industrial revolution, fear and anxiety were the way to focus people on a task and get it done. And that was effective because the world wasn't changing as much. This is before, if you remember, let's just say it out loud. It's before there were telephones. It was before there were airplanes. And it was certainly before there were computers. The idea that now information exchange is instantaneous, we're all hyper-connected. When you come up with a new strategy or an innovation, all your competitors know about that tomorrow. They're copying it within weeks, not years. You don't get decades. So the idea that you're putting your finger on right now is what's good for employees in terms of releasing dopamine, feeling more alive, feeling zest for work, is exactly what firms need in terms of curiosity, trying new things, being enthusiastic, forming real relationships with customers. So to the extent that firms that don't do that die and firms that do that thrive, I think that I would predict human satisfaction would increase. And do you think that would be the case in some of the least paid jobs? The ones like whether it's I don't know, being a sort of delivery driver or um, anything that, that, that seems pretty mundane. Yeah, I, I do. Um, let's talk about another specific example. There is a food um, and milk delivery company right here in the UK. And this company was not doing very well because Ocado came out. And they offered a lot more delivery options and delivery timing options. And this company only delivered early in the morning. And these drivers were disgruntled. They were treated like children by authoritarian managers, some for 30 years. They were very disconnected with the business, to say the least. As they were loading up the trucks, you could taste the cynicism in the air. They would openly mock the managers. It was a very parent-child relationship, and the management saw their job as gathering information and then once a week yelling at them for what they'd messed up, and it was called the roundsman meeting. 10 minutes of getting yelled at every week. And it was going horribly, of course. And then all of a sudden, they wanted these people's good ideas and they wanted their customer satisfaction. They were looking for ways to improve. They weren't very keen to give them at first. But um, what happened was they hired a consulting firm. They came in there and looked at what was happening and said, oh my, <laughs> you have no alignment between customer satisfaction and ideas and this relationship that you have with managers. So what they did is they took that 10-minute weekly meeting, and they changed it, 
so that the only question that the leader asked was the first question. They walked in and they said, how can I help you create better customer service? And they listened. First week, not too many people opened up, but one did. One said, well, you're always yelling at us for getting our whites. They deliver in all whites. You're always yelling at us for getting our whites dirty, but then you make us wear our whites when we're loading the truck. So either don't make us wear our whites or get us aprons. So the manager says, oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> he goes out and gets them aprons or they don't have to wear their whites. And other people saw that and said, hmm. So somebody else the next week said, well, here's an idea. You're looking for all these ways to try to increase. We're delivering in the morning right before parents are packing the kids' lunches. Let's deliver Go-Gurts and string cheese and stuff that kids like. Oh, okay. So you start doing that. Those items start taking off. Other people see that. It gets to the point where employees, these drivers have been shut off for decades, are bringing in pages of notes. People are bringing in ideas about, for example, that we could de deliver dry cleaning, that we could deliver those Amazon packages instead of them having to go to the post office. Loads of ideas are coming in. The problem became, how do we deal with all these good ideas? How do we sort through them? The important thing is, when we, as drivers, my, my father was a truck driver, as call center operators, we still have this part of our brain that's urging us to try new things, to talk about our unique perspective, to give ideas that might be an idea that I had and to try it and give it life. We all have that part of our brain. Thank you, Dan. And before you conclude, I'd like to remind listeners to read more on this in your new book, Alive at Work. And perhaps to end the podcast, could you summarize what are the quick wins for leaders who want to unleash the potential of their people at work? I think in the short term, there's two or three quick wins that you'd get to. Um, one is this notion of a best self report. When I mentioned that around Wipro, you can also put that on steroids, where they go out to friends and family, mentors, professors from college, and you have them write stories about when they've seen you at your best. And it's quite an aha. It gives you a new look at who I can be when I'm at my very best. But the notion of using these best self-reports and best self-narratives to turn people on about what they're capable of, I'd call that a quick win. A second thing that we've done that is, we've done this in a hospital and in a, a not-for-profit called Make-A-Wish Foundation, we've allowed employees to create their own job titles where the job titles reflect the unique value that they bring to the team. And in that, we found in both a qualitative study and a quantitative experiment that we were able to reduce burnout on the job by allowing people to express what they did best. And these are things that don't cost money. These are things that are relatively cheap that you can do. A third one that I'd add right on the heels of that are strengths-based conversations. Leaders can do these for free, but it's a matter of sitting down with people and asking them, what part of the job turns you on the most? What do you think you do that adds the most value here? Let's talk about some of the strengths that you bring that you could bring more of to turn you know, work into a platform for learning. This way of talking and thinking is so different from the SMART goals, the cascading objectives that start with, we need to be at this profit margin in the next year. What you have to do on your job is make these cuts. It's a really different type of conversation and it ignites people instead of dulling them. So that's one. The longer term is trickier because the longer term what we have to do is get at these assumptions. We have to get at the assumption of 
this creative apartheid that we seem to believe in organizations where the leaders think they're the creative ones. They're the ones that get to do the innovation and the workers just have to wait and then listen. I think that that power shift won't be easy for people in power. Giving up that control and that sense of ego satisfaction is going, that's addictive like a drug. It's going to be, that's going to be tricky for a lot of leaders. The long-term solution that I believe in the, the most is job crafting, where if we go back again to industrial revolution, we created these small confined jobs that were a lot like cells and people had to cram themselves into those cells and the job was it, what it was. That's what you had to do. And then you either fit in or you got fired. And job crafting flips that on its head and it starts by saying, you're talented. We hired you because you're smart. We want your ideas. We leaders, we don't really know. We're not that close to the customer. This is the sort of output you have to create in the job. Here's the frame about the, the ways that you have to make value for the final user. But how you do that's really up to you. Why don't you talk to us about the strengths that you have and the way you'd be able to craft that job around what you're best. And I think that way of thinking, which by the way is the opposite of how most organizations are set up. It's the opposite of how we hire. It's the opposite of how we pay. It's the opposite of how we do performance management. That's why I think it's the nub of a revolution and firms that can get good at job crafting start to become experts at igniting people's seeking systems, at winning the new war for talent. So we're throwing out a lot of the old business ideas and bringing in a whole new set of principles for business. I think that's fabulous. There's a phrase called humble leadership that I think will be increasingly important for leaders to understand. Starting with the assumption that as a leader, I'm overhead, I'm a cost, unless I'm helping get the best out of the people that I serve. This was a London Business School Review podcast, bringing you fresh ideas and opinion from London Business School's experts. To listen and read more, visit www.london.edu forward slash LBSR.